today on Ag News Daily. Well, the company was literally born in a barn on Vancouver Island. So uh, Corey Spencer, who was our technical founder, had left the tech sector to milk goats and make cheese. And goats get mastitis as well as cows, and he had an issue with his goats. Hey, listeners, welcome back. After a long Labor Day weekend, September 5th, 2023, Tanner and Delaney here to sort through the little bit of news we've got today. Well, coming off of a holiday weekend, Tanner, yeah, it certainly doesn't seem like there's too much we have to talk about today. No, we've got uh, some heated headlines coming out of Russia, but we'll start off here in the United States where we still see hot weather. The potential issue will be now for parts of eastern Minnesota, western Wisconsin for heat indexes in the triple digits. Still looking at hot forecasts for most of the Midwest, but that's where the concentrated effort is right now. As you look further south, thunderstorms are expected to be in parts of southern Missouri and Illinois this afternoon. As a couple of fronts move through the region, storms will bring risk of hail, strong winds, and lightning. Uh, that is also not great for some of these areas that have been dry and fire ignition is likely. There's a potential of a few strong thunderstorms that could produce over 60 mile per hour winds throughout portions of the rest of the U.S. And of course, there's another their tropical disturbance Delaney that the U.S. is watching to see if it could be the next tropical storm slash hurricane. Yeah, I've got a few weather headlines here as well, Tanner, mostly related to the dry heat that we've seen here across much of the Corn Belt. After a scorching heat week, we saw the week ending September 2nd finally bring a little bit of relief to the Corn Belt with some cooler temperatures. But as far as per per the precipitation goes that was pretty sparse and led to one of the driest ends in august in nearly 30 plus years however when we look at state specific numbers iowa continued to expand their drought last week after a lack of rainfall across much of the state now brought tanner the state of iowa to the worst drought that we've seen according to the u.s drought monitor since march of 2013. These drought conditions have eclipsed their previous worst of this year, which occurred in late June and early July. Last week averaged about 10 degrees above normal temperatures in Iowa, and rainfall was about one-fifth of what's normally expected. So we're going to be ramping up here to see another hot and dry streak that started really over the weekend, and it's expected here to last for quite some time, Tanner. So certainly Iowa and a few other states are taking the brunt of that there. But as far as looking at South America, they're actually expecting weather conditions to finally improve this growing season. After about three years of El Nino weather patterns, we're starting to see, or sorry, after three years of La Nina weather patterns, we're going to start to see things really shift to El Nino weather patterns, which will bring cooler and wetter temperatures to South America. And they could certainly use that, Tanner. But those are the big uh, weather headlines I have for this morning. Yeah, as you started off talking about Iowa, I've got Iowa in the headlines again. The state grain fees are resuming this week to replenish the indemnity fund. A fee of a quarter cent per bushel on grain sales is poised to go in effect this Friday to start that rebuilding process. The quarter cent per quarter percent quarter cent per bushel, oh boy, uh, will begin to rebuild from dealer and warehouse failures. That fee, along with the participation fees for dealers, 
uh, is a project that will generate around $6 million for the Grain Indemnity Fund. This fund has been in operation for four decades and pays farmers for their losses if they're unable to collect payments from their dealers or grain from warehouses. It pays up to $300,000 per claim. The fee hasn't been collected since 1989 because the fund has long been in the balance of excess of what the state mandates is a $3 million minimum. The fee ceases after the fund surpasses $8 million. Under the previous law, its reinstatement is supposed to happen in July, but state lawmakers delayed that start for two months to allow for dealers to adjust their accounting procedures in order to collect this fee appropriately. Larger dealers are often use computer software to track their sales, but most farmers won't notice anything different on their checks coming and going from the elevator this fall. So they'll continue to keep an eye an outlet as far as this process goes to see how quickly we reach that $6 million goal or to shut this off at the $8 million indemnity fund. And we'll see again if that will last for nearly another 30 years, Delaney. Well, Tanner, as we look at U.S. beef prices, we've seen a huge jump compared to where U.S. cattle prices were at compared to an, a year ago. Over the last year, we've seen U.S. cattle prices up nearly 30%, while Australian cattle prices, by comparison, are down nearly 30%. It's been a long time since we've seen such a wide price disparity between these two countries, but it's not just Australia where prices are sliding, according to Rabobank. Their senior animal protein analyst, Angus Girdley-Baird, says that the wide separation we're seeing right now between global prices and the strength we've seen in the U.S. protein market is going to have some consequences for beef exporters moving forward. Although we've seen demand relatively strong, both domestically and globally, he said it's probably time that that shift is going to start to come. And we're going to start to see trade volumes shift lower globally. He said there's a few reasons for that, Tanner, as we look at their third quarter report. Um, the Asian markets are mostly full as we look at them stockpiling back up after the COVID-19 pandemic. We've seen a lot of those countries that consume a lot of beef and protein have been working really hard to make sure that they have enough in the, in the uh, reserves now. And as you think about just price disparity. Uh, he said it's less likely that even if they do need protein, they're going to come to the United States, seeing that we have a 30% disparity compared to quite a few other producers out there. So globally. Uh, so he says to start to focus on, you know, how you can protect some of that risk for especially cattle producers, Tanner, because that might, that, that ship we've seen here, really steaming forward might be coming to an end very soon. Yeah, that's interesting. The other ship we might see coming to an end is maybe the Fed's fight against inflation. However, we're not expected to see that stop until the 10-year Treasury yield gets above 5%. Getting inflation down to 2% will be a challenge. The strong U.S. GDP growth numbers and the consumer price inflation dipping to 3.2% have all sent some waves of optimism out that we actually might hit that soft landing. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell now has to artfully maneuver the U.S. monetary policy so inflation slides within that 2% window without derailing economic growth. Of course, that's easier said than done. We'll continue to keep an eye on what the Fed 
does this month for interest rate hikes. Finance federal incentives, more like healthcare spending. The federal deficit for the fiscal year ending September is likely to hit $1.85 trillion. That's 6.9% of the GDP or well above the average for industrialized economies. So that's not a positive factor that we're continuing to monitor. Although structural constraints on supply that were imposed by COVID I have starting to see things move forward. It might eventually hurt the Chinese economy more than ours. And we'll see what other unforeseen problems may come about. But as of right now, Delaney, the way factors are moving forward, it does point all signs towards another rate hike coming in September. But that rate hike is apparently to be considered a valid rate hike due to the increased GDP figures and the continued positive move downward in our inflation. So we'll continue to keep an eye on that for our listeners. But unfortunately, it looks like we've got another rate hike coming this month. Well, Tanner, one thing we may not have a rate hike in is rental rates for 2024. Chad Hart, an economist at Iowa State University, said he's been starting to look at the trends for next year's farmland rental prices, and they're coming in fairly mixed. He said he's done some informal surveys with farm managers and rural appraisers to start to look at the 2024 growing season, he said the outlook is definitely mixed. He's expecting definitely as a trend increases of less than 5%, but he said some appraisers and managers even foresee a small decrease in the rental rates that they have been negotiating for 2024. Many land-grant universities have released surveys showing that rent increased in 23, similar to those of 2022, with, for example, in Iowa, the average rental rate rising by almost 9% in 2023 and 11, 7 to 11% in Nebraska, for example, as a comparison. But he said he really is expecting to see prices start to pull back here for cash rental, not necessarily farmland sales, Tanner, because as we look at some interesting farmland sales, DTN had an article on their Landwatch edition this morning. And the trend here, Tanner, is there must be either investors, institutional investors, or farmers sitting on a lot of cash because they noted about six different huge land sales, Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, Iowa, Louisiana, Nebraska, Ohio, and Virginia, all topping a million dollars. These sales, Tanner, spanned anywhere from 100 acres to, I believe, 1,200 acres was the largest sale that they noted in their land watch edition, but prices ranged from just over a million dollars for the 100 acre farm that sold in Indiana, all the way to in the Kansas area, a 1200 acre sale with a price tag uh, topping $2 million. But all in all, Tanner, all of these farmland sales were large purchases, both in the financial capacity as well as the size of the farms being sold. So again, it calls into question, um, are there farmers sitting on this much cash that they have that liquid available to them to be able to purchase these large farms? Or is there some institutional dollars coming into the farmland sector? Um, That article didn't really indicate what they thought. And to be honest, I don't know that, you know, that information is typically released, Tanner, but uh, interesting nonetheless. Yeah, it's that information is only speculated based upon small survey 
sample sizes as to how much land is bought with cash, but uh, certainly interesting nonetheless. Last headlines I've got is coming from the Russian side uh, of the country of the world. Turkish president appeared to accidentally declare war on Russia due to a translation blunder during a meeting with Vladimir Putin. The war is between Russia and Turkey, and the Turkish translator announced during a meeting between the two leaders, Turkey is a NATO state. If this declaration were to be true, the world would plunge into world war. So, but Putin, who was there to discuss the Black Black Sea Green Deal, appeared appeared to not take any offense by the blunder. It was unclear if the male interpreter did this on purpose, but it is not an official declaration of war. However, U.S. officials said that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un may travel to Russia to meet with Putin for discussions on a potential deal to supply Moscow with weapons for its war. Ukrainian's foreign minister said that Russian conditions uh, to revive the key Black Sea, Black sea grain deal are classic blackmail after Putin met with the Turkish counterparts. The officials have dismissed Ukraine's defense minister following a vote in parliament on Tuesday. The former People's Deputy of Ukraine is expected to take over that role. Russia also destroyed Ukrainian drones over Moscow and two other regions neighboring the capital on Tuesday, as such attacks are now becoming an almost daily occurrence. We do also see Cuba enter the news as part of their accusations that Cubans had been trafficked to Russia to fight on their behalf, which would again be another military war crime. So that is what I've got for headlines today. Well, Tanner, just one other quick um, headline that I had here, which impacted the markets, especially in the wheat complex. As we looked at the holiday weekend, Sunday morning, Russia attacked the Ukrainian port of Reni, damaging again warehouses and port infrastructure. This came just one day after that meeting that you mentioned there, Tanner, went down when we had a little blunder in the translation process. But nonetheless, wheat is trading mixed this morning as we head back into the opening section after the holiday weekend. All grain prices, for that matter, are mostly trading lower aside from the wheat complex. December corn today down a penny in the overnight. Heading into opening will be at 480 and a half, some light Light holiday trade this weekend. Uh, March old crop corn down a penny at four ninety five and a half. Soybeans in the November contract down five and a quarter cent at thirteen sixty four. January beans down five and a half at thirteen seventy seven and a quarter. Chicago December wheat up three and three quarter cents at five ninety nine and a quarter. Hard red December one winter wheat down a penny and a quarter at 721 and a half. And December spring wheat up two pennies at 761 and three quarters. A quick reminder at where livestock ended last week. And don't forget, folks, we've got a WASDE report coming out later this week, which could provide some fresh fodder to the grain markets. October live cattle shed 67 and a half cents heading into the holiday weekend will open at 180.15. September feeder cattle. Well, excuse me, October feeder cattle down $1.37 and a half at $254.65. And October lean hogs added 50 cents on Friday, heading in this morning at 83.05. Tanner for today's Tech Tuesday interview, I chatted with a startup company that is focused on using AI and infrared technology to detect mastitis early in dairy cows. 
Well, listeners, for today's Tech Tuesday conversation, I'm very excited to be chatting today with Tamara Lee of EIO Diagnostics. Tamara, you have a very interesting background about how you got into EIO Diagnostics, which works specifically in the dairy industry. So we'll get to that here in just a moment. But for our listeners, give us a little background about who you are. Yeah. Hi. Uh, well, my name is Tamara Lee, and I'm CEO of EIO Diagnostics. I'm a co-founder of this company. We started it six years ago. Um, I came in as the agriculture uh, representative to an ag tech company. Uh, the co-founders were, uh, we had one from the startup spaces who was an engineer, one who was actually a farmer who had retired from tech, um, but neither of them knew what, about the market or had reached out a lot to other farmers. And so that's where I came in. So. So you mentioned stepping into that as kind of the ag tech, the token ag person. But what was the problem that led you guys to then starting the company together? Well, the company was literally born in a barn on Vancouver Island. So uh, Corey Spencer, who was our technical founder, had left the tech sector to milk goats and make cheese. And goats get mastitis as well as cows. And he had an issue with his goats and decided that he wanted a better tool than what he could find out on the market. So he went back to his tech roots and he started experimenting with different sensors and with, with AI machine learning um, to develop this tool. So they came with the first prototype and he said to me, hey, is there a market for this? I said, yeah. Let's go. Okay, so this was six years ago. And then I know you and I were talking about this a little bit earlier. Then COVID happened, and you guys kind of had to pivot the whole business model and just what you were doing. So you've been through a lot of challenges over the last six years. But EIO Diagnostics, before we get to what you do, I also have to ask, the name is just, it's a little cheeky. Yes, absolutely. Um, so yes, EIO Diagnostics. That's, that's where we're going with this. Yeah. Do producers realize that when you start telling them the name? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, there's a good number. There are half of them who go, hey, I saw what you did there. And the other half go, you, they didn't. Really? We did. Okay, I love that. I think that's a good a good uh, setup too, just to kind of describe the culture and like the vibrancy of, of your company. But in its current form today, you're identifying mastitis in dairy cows earlier than even maybe what people are seeing, the milking parlor is seeing. How are you going about doing that? So we use infrared imaging and machine learning to identify early indications of inflammation in the udder. So mastitis is by definition the inflammation of the mammary glands and inflammation is going to come with um, changes in, in heat distribution in the udder. So we use um, the cows go by a sensor, an optical sensor, and then we capture a thermal image of the udder. And basically we, we map that and changes in the intensity of the heat. And, distribution so and then we can flag that right I mean it happens in real time we capture that image we run it through our algorithms and we can do an output you know in like less than two seconds and and you have the list of cows that need action at the end of the end of the milking so just to paint the picture a little bit for our listeners because obviously they can't visually see it it's a it's a sensor it's a box that's secured to your pole and your milking parlor and as the cows are rotating around, it's, like you said, mapping the udder, mapping uh, with the sensor, all of these different factors. Is that a good way to kind of describe what it looks like? Yeah, it is. Right now, we only work with rotary parlors, so that carousel where the, ro the, the platform rotates and the cows move past 
our camera. Um, we basically have the camera or the sensor on a pole. The cows go by and it's very calm and contained. We don't touch the cow. We don't touch the milk. Um, we just capture that image and do the analysis from there. I'm sure you get this question a lot, but how early can you detect if they have potentially mastitis? The question is how early does it matter to farmers? Uh, that's, that's the real answer uh, for us. So we see cows consistently about two days earlier than manual milkers would in force stripping. And it's just that we can see the inflammation and the pattern developing um, earlier than they'll see the flakes or clots in the milk. And so when they're seeing this earlier detection, like you said, it's real time. They're able to take action immediately. Have you guys done any sort of research on improvements in profitability or how the farmer's been able to potentially save milk or anything like that? Now, we've modeled off of the industry standard information. So, I mean, there are tons of, of dairy economists out there and, and animal science experts. Um, you know, Pam Rug, who's written all of these fantastic papers on dairy economics. Um, you know, that's fairly well stated. The, the trick is that we're still a relatively early stage company. So we're still bringing this to market and working with early adopters. And we need to see the way that it plays out specifically on farm. Because, you know, one of the things we were talking about sooner or earlier in our conversation today Day is that you know you have an idea of what's going to happen and then you have the reality of what happens when you get to the farm and so we need to see those numbers play out yeah I think that's the interesting about people who are collecting data and trying to turn that into AI or technology is there's so many things you cannot account for especially when it's on a farm when animals are involved uh, there's lots of factors with weather and outside critters and such that you just can't account for. But when you look at collecting that data and layering that data, not to get too into the weeds, but how does the artificial intelligence and machine learning process work? Well, we work off collecting data sets first, right? So the first challenge for EIO Diagnostics was um, setting up our sensors so we could collect the data because you just can't go to Google and download, you know, infrared images of mystic udders. It doesn't exist. Um, so we first we had to get our, our sensors together. Then we had to make them survive the back end of 10,000 dairy cows every day. Uh, then we had to look at our data hygiene. So what were we going to use for ground truth? And we chose to use manual milkers for ground truth because there's so much discussion about what is the ground truth for mastitis, right? The one thing everybody, the academics, the the industry experts, the, the farmers can all agree on is if there are flakes and clots in the milk or there are signs of heat and swelling in the udder, you have a clinical cow. Great. So we worked off of that data set and then used the confirmed images, you know, from, from farms where we had the manual milkers doing the, the screening and we could confirm that we had that image of that cow. We developed that and then we teach, we, we teach the algorithm. It's called the supervised learning process, um, how to recognize mastitis um, in in the field. Um, and then, you know, we do it in the lab or, you know, at, at the computer. When we roll it out into the uh, dairies, we need to do that double check and make sure we're doing it right. Yeah. So, I also found it earlier, interesting earlier, you know, we briefly glazed over the COVID point, but I want to come back to that because prior to COVID, part of the team was located in Canada and part of the team was located here in the United States. But you guys made a big pivot during COVID to permanently move the company to the United States. Why was that decision made? Yeah, our entire development team and business team was in Canada um, and our equipment was in Minnesota. So when the international border closed with COVID, we got locked out of our own company. 
I chose when I took over as CEO to move the company entirely to the U.S. There are 10 times as many dairy cows in the U.S. as there are in Canada. Um, there's much greater intensity and much larger farms. So our capacity as a, as a data-driven company, we needed to be able to work with big dairies to collect those data sets to, to do the development that we needed to do. And then we can scale back from there and say, okay, we can make this work at a 5,000 or 10,000 cow dairy. Now, what do we need to make it work at 1,000 cow dairy or 500 cow dairy or 100 cow dairy or, you know, somewhere else? So, Yeah, that's interesting that you have to kind of work backwards and think about how to reverse engineer it for those smaller operations. Um, when you look at the ideal size, and you mentioned you're kind of just now getting into the revenue stage, what kind of dairy farmers are you working with right now to get it implemented into their operations? Yeah. We have a great uh, development partner in South Kansas, so large dairy, uh, two rotaries, about 18,000 cows. Um, we have our first uh, commercial installation in Wisconsin, which is a 4,500 cow operation on, a, on an 80-point rotary. Um, you know, these are ideal farms for us to be able to work with because, again, you know, we put a single sensor on the rotary. We can see as many cows as they spin in a day, and, and it's really ultimately a labor augmentation or a labor replacement technology you know we can take that one task that is incredibly repetitive that does require skill uh, that needs somebody looking at the udders every day to see if you have mastitis or, or udder health images emerging we can take that and automate that so that your people are doing something else you know that is less repetitive and way better suited to their attributes and skill sets. Yes, the dull, dangerous, and dirty jobs are getting automated through things like AI, and it sounds like this is no different for the mastitis detection as well. When you look at um, the, the future of EIO and the feedback you're starting to get from dairy farmers now, what, what's ahead for you guys? Well, we're going to market now with the rotary parlors, and so we're looking for um, early adopters, people who are willing to take a chance and do something a little bit different, help us work through some of those last last uh, finishing touches on the system. Um, so really, you know, building out that community um, and then taking this much broader. So we're also working on a, a version right now that's a, a walkover sensor. So that'll address the parallel in herringbone parlors, even robotic um, milking stalls, if that's what people are doing. Um, but just, you know, anything where the cows are walking over through the entry chute and we can catch that image. That really blows it open for us, right? Then we can, can work with everyone. Do you have plans to expand into other livestock sectors to identify other problems in the future? Yeah, so I always say start with cows because that's where we are. Uh, and, and we are looking at other, other health issues in cows. Uh, we're also looking at other dairy species though. I mean, if we have these models trained for mastitis, it's a matter of collecting the data set for goats, for sheep, um, and there's 50 million water buffalo in India that are being milked right now uh, that nobody ever thinks about. So. That's really interesting. Well, tomorrow, if we have our, any listeners that are interested in being early adopters of the technology, where can they go to find out more information? You can go to our website, which is eiodiagnostics.com. Perfect. Well, thanks for joining. Thank you very much. Hey, what a great way to kick off the week. Thanks for sharing that with us, Delaney. Looking forward to the rest of the week's episodes. But for today, what do you say? Should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go.